Hello and welcome to another episode of Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. In this episode, I am trying something new. I listen to a lot of podcasts, which I'm sure is a huge shocker to you. And recently, I heard a fantastic monthly recap episode on The Tim Ferriss Show. I absolutely love the idea and decided to bring you all a similar style episode with samples of each of the month's interviews. That way, if you're on the fence about listening to an episode, then you can hear a taster here and decide if you want to listen to the whole thing. Since this is brand new out of the ethers, please let me know what you think of these sample collections. Reach out on Instagram or Facebook at Rewildology or email me at hello at Rewildology.com. All right, friends, here you go. Enjoy. First up is DRN Smith DVM from episode 74, Wildlife Veterinarian and the World's Leading Pygmy Sloth Researcher. Oh, I can't wait to really start diving into these sloths. So... Okay. I think maybe a logical place to start would be people probably don't even know there is such a thing as a pygmy sloth. So maybe let's start there. (laughs) Where is this pygmy sloth and is it different than its, I guess, quote unquote, bigger counterparts? What makes this species special? And then I really want to get deep into your project itself. Yes. Well, yeah, in Panama, we have three species of sloths. The Bradipus variegatus, uh, who is the tree-toed sloth, is plenty distributed in all Panama. And the Coloepus of Mani, the two-toed sloths, plenty distributed in, in all the, the mainland or, or in Panama. But we have uh, the unique species, an endemic one, the pygmy sloth, who was the only one uh, in critical danger, who live in a small island called Escudo de Veraguas Island, who is located in the Caribbean side of Panama. And why is so important? Because it's the only one uh, species who is, has a, um, okay, this is difficult to pronounce for me. Dwarf, dwarfism? Dwarfs? Sorry. It was uh, dwarfism? Oh, dwarfism. Yeah, that's what. That's not an easy word. (laughs) Yeah, this is this is experiment something that we know as a dwarfism phenomenon. That's why it's so different uh, to the other species. Uh, Their size, uh, the weight, less than the species species from the mainland. And of course, it's in critical danger because live in a very small island. So. Every kind, any kind of um, disturbance in this island is going to affect directly these species. In general, looks similar to the Bradipus variegatus, but is when was discovered as a new species in 2001 uh, by Anderson and Hanley, they made uh, morphological and, and um, measurements of the school of everything of the body. And they compare to the different slots from the islands in the archipelago of Bocas del Toro. That's why the pygmy slot who live in the oldest island from the archipelago in Bocas del Toro uh, is less, um, is a dwarfism, dwarfism phenomenon, have that word dwarfism phenomenon. And this dwarfism phenomenon is when a species, a mammal, a big mammal is, is 
live in um, a specific area, probably don't given too much resources, eventually through the years is going to be smaller or reduce their size. While the species or animals, smaller animals in that a specific area that is small like an island, has a lot of resources, probably is going to be a little bit more bigger, a bit bigger than animals from the mainland. That's why in, in, in the Escudo de Veraguas, we have the pygmy slot who is dwarfism, dwarfing, but we have uh, the human bird who is a Gaian human bird in, compari in comparison to the mainland. So that's why um, the pygmy slot is so important because it's, it's unique. And of course, it's part of an island who is too small. So that's why, that's why it's an endangered species, critical endangered species. Mm. So then what is the biggest issues that they're currently facing or the biggest threats? Well, this is very uh, interesting because in the beginning of my project, when I was there and, and I was talking with the indigenous community, because I, and when I started, I started to walk to walk with them, to be with them, to live with the indigenous community, just to know more about what they know about the pygmy slot, what they know about the island, and how can I um, give them more knowledge about how the species living there and how to protect them in the future. And in that period of time, like seven years ago, one of the big traits was um, the number of people there using, a lot of people there using their, their trees, the mangrove, uh, because they're using the mangrove for cooking, some other important trees, because they're using to build houses in the island, and a lot of uh, fishermen and divers living in the island uh, during the season just to, to, do, to use their resources from the island, but at the same time, using the forest that probably is, of course, important from the pygmy slot. But now, one of the threats that probably is not going to change too much from that time is the, the increase of tourism mm -hmm. in the island. Now everything changed. Now there are more people um, with tourists using the island as an beautiful place to stay there. And the pygmy slot is one of the attractions. So that is something sensitive because it's a important species and we have to be, we have to increase our information about their trees. I mean, if they're healthy, if they are, you know, we are doing genetic studies too. And this kind of um, perturbance or disturbance from the people's more anthropogenic activities in the island is going to put this small animal in, in trade. And that is the problem that we are facing now with the pygmy slot. Is obviously it's one of the most flat species and is charismatic species, but at the same time is attractive for our track called um, the illegal traffic of a species. Mm. So this is another trait that the big mislot is, is facing.
Next is Alison Kusick from Episode 75, a phytoplankton researcher in Antarctica, PhD candidate at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, a founder of the Fjord Phyto Project, and a polar guide. So we are officially to Antarctica. Now, this might be too much of a jump, and if we need to reverse it a little bit, let me know. So what did you do after that? What are you currently studying? studying like you are you are elbow deep in this like you are so deep like it, this is your life now yeah. and you're also working on your PhD you're asking a lot of questions you're partnered with a very specific group of people that I'm very fond of because I happen to be in the same industry so <laughs> what is it that you do now the kind of research and everything I just kind of hinted at so we made this big jump now we're officially into Antarctica and the polar region so let's explore that what do you do what do I do I I um so I guess in a nutshell I am a polar phytoplankton ecologist it looks at behavior of phytoplankton in relationship to the environment, but also at a genetic level. And so I'm in the PhD program at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and I'm focusing on biological oceanography, which is really like the study of, of or life in the environment. So um, when I first went down, that project in the Ross Sea was tracing the fate of algal carbon exports. So I, when I later went to graduate school, I was like, you know, I have a lot of background now in phytoplankton from that job working in the lab running highly controlled experiments. So I don't necessarily want to leave phytoplankton, although I thought like maybe I could study some other organism. But I, phytoplankton are really awesome in that they're single cell organisms that you seem maybe like they're kind of boring because what is our daily relationship to phytoplankton? It's like, you know, you maybe bioluminescent tides, you've seen the waves glowing. Maybe um, you eat like marine algal superfoods. It's like a green powder, diatomaceous earth you put on your insects or if you have a bug infestation, but like in there's algal biofuel now, but in general, it's like, they're kind of not in part of our daily lives. So I was like open to other opportunities but they really do provide an awesome kind of way to study genetics and ecology and they grow fast in the lab. So you can do highly controlled experiments, but you can also go out to sea and study them on ships. And you can also use satellites to study phytoplankton. So I think for me, phytoplankton has been like a conduit for the type of science and and questions I'm interested in and different tools available. And then the more you think you learn about phytoplankton, the more you start to go down these like rabbit holes of like, what the heck are they? Like, they're not a plant. They're not an animal. They're not a fungi. They're not an archaea. They're not a bacteria. They're this whole group of life called protists. And phytoplankton is just the Greek word phyto for plant and plankton for drifter. But really it's, it's any single cell protist that can use sunlight to make energy. So that's why it's kind of like a plant It has chlorophyll in it. Um, and so I think, yeah, the more I learn about phytoplankton, the crazier it is. It's like sci-fi. So if you like sci-fi, anybody out there, they have crazy feeding strategies. And then of course, trying to relate them to how they're being affected in the polar environment. Cause they're you know, living in these cold conditions, there's, um, I work with phytoplankton now on the Antarctic peninsula. Um, so that 
has a lot of influence from melting glaciers. So there's a lot of fresh water coming from the glaciers on land that enters the marine environment. So my research questions now are looking at how is this melting freshwater influencing the diversity of phytoplankton and when we see certain phytoplankton showing up during the season, because that matters for the next layer of life that eats phytoplankton, which is the krill. And then of course, in the polar system, the krill are eaten by whales, seals, and penguins and all the other animals down there. So trying to understand that, but of course, it's also hard to understand that big picture just with one research ship alone, which is then how um, tying in and partnering with the tour vessels has been an awesome collaboration because tour vessels are on the peninsula bringing visitors down all five months of the sunlit season. And then in the winter, you know, the sun doesn't come up and the ocean freezes and then nobody's really there. It's like maybe a thousand researchers are still on the continent total of all the nations, but yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of uh, aspects that have been woven into running a project, looking at phytoplankton in the water, on ships, with travelers, with polar guides, with satellite tools and genetics. It's like, I don't know, it's like a melting pot of amazingness. Following Allison is Katerina Audley from episode 76, founder of Whales of Guerrero in Mexico. So I guess the people that were giving the most pushback, were they from the community itself and would like come to you and say that they didn't like what you were doing or or what are these examples that you're talking about right now? Um, so let's see, uh, who are the haters? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hashtag who are the haters? So, I mean, I guess you can look at it. Like there's a lot of different ways that people can not like the project. One is that I'm not a scientist. I don't have a degree in science and um, I'm making this up as I go along. And I have really, really great advisors who are scientists and who keep me honest and rigorous and I hire scientists, but um, my project is very touchy-feely and it's very emotionally driven and it prioritizes uh, emotional and social connection over data. And so we drop data opportunities for being good whale watch models. For example, when we're out on the water and we, if we're with a whale for more than a half hour, we don't stay with it. Even if we haven't um, collected all the data we want about that whale, if it hasn't showed us its tail and given us an ID. So we follow the safe whale watch laws in Mexico, which are should be 240 meters if you're not an authorized whale watch boat and you can get up to 60 meters to a whale if you're an authorized whale watch boat and you never spend more than 60 minutes with a whale so that they get lots of space and time to themselves. And so we've always prioritized being a good role model over being a um, getting the most data possible. And we don't collect biopsies. We only do passive uh, research. So so if the if the whale jumps and it uh, has already shown it's its tail, what happens is they slough off some skin. And so then we can collect the skin and then we can get genetic data from the skin of the whale that way. But that only has given us like 35 whale DNA samples over the past nine years, which is 35 more than ever existed. But if we went up and stuck a dart into every single whale, we would have hundreds by now. And I feel really proud that we didn't do that. We, we collected only passive data because for me, 
I always imagine what it will look like if a hundred of us were doing the same thing. And for the scientists to be like, oh, trust me, I'm a scientist. I can do this now. You stay away from the whale. I'm going to go be over there with the whale up super close, but you can't because you don't have special training. And then you're a fisherman. You live at sea. You've spent 10,000 hours more than that person over there has around the animals. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't square up. So um, I think that uh, there's some scientists that, especially in the beginning, didn't really respect our approach. They were, it was just kind of a head scratcher for them. Uh, and then as we collect more and more data, um, our, our approach is working in that we've filled in a big black hole of knowledge about what marine mammals are in our whole state. And that's cool. And we've also built a model of community-driven conservation that is working. So that in 10 years, if I'm not there, the community will still be doing this work and the kids and their kids are going to be following this relationship with nature that we've really been cultivating, where we celebrate the arrival of the whales with respect and appreciation and gratitude. And um, the kids are rigorous, like they know the names of whales and dolphins in Latin, like a killer whale swam in front of their school a couple of years ago. And you only see a killer whale once every few years. And the kids came running up to us in the street and said, we saw a killer whale. And it, I know you're gonna say it's not a killer whale. You're gonna say it's a pilot whale or a false killer whale, but it was a killer whale. It had a white saddle patch and the fin was shaped like this. And it went on and on and on. And I was like, yes, I believe you, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so that was really cool that they're, they've learned to look deeply at life and to collect data around the things that they have, but also they have a passion and a sense of identity. And it's like, these are our whales and uh, the women make awesome art about whales. I mean, you're looking at the, the background behind me and I have all this art on the walls that the women in the village made about whales. And they did those? Yeah. Stunning. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they make great art. We just had a big art fair yesterday in uh, the village and uh, over a thousand people came and bought the handicrafts of the women. And it's all like handmade nature themed art, art that people come to buy. So it's um, the village really today is a place that prides itself on that. But as it becomes wealthier, um, there's always conflicts. I mean, when, when people go through phases of growth, it's hard, you know, I mean, and, and people get competitive and then there's infighting and COVID hasn't made it easy. I mean, we can't gather and have big healing times together that allow us to just be together in, in an informal way and kind of work it out. Um, like it doesn't really, you can't really work stuff out in workshops and meetings. Like you need to work things out over a beer. Right. And, you know, over some food and get together once a month and just eat some tacos and shoot, shoot the breeze. It's like, that's really when the friendship is like, you know, you build that friendship over food and then that builds trust. And then that trust is what leads people to be willing to make leaps of faith when times are hard. And when you haven't asked, and if you haven't put that time in, you can spend down all of that social capital, just like that. So not having had that time to be together, um, it, it goes quickly. And, uh, and yeah, so that's, um, yeah, like this year when I got, I, I stayed back in Oregon where I am today in January, and I'm usually there from January through March, but this year 
Omicron was here and I'm like a one woman super spreader potentially. Like all I do when I'm down there is go from meeting to meeting to meeting and bring together little groups of people to drink beer and eat tacos and talk about their vision for nature and mostly listen. And uh, so I just decided I needed to stay home during Omicron. I didn't want to be a spreader. And so, I mean, of course I'm vaccinated, but I just, it, it, there's not, it wasn't the thing to do. So I missed the first part of the season. And when I got down there, there was a lot of infighting between the guides and my team had already kind of started their own dynamic. That was a great dynamic, but it wasn't going the direction I needed it to go in terms of the project because they'd been running it in one direction and I needed to like make some adjustments with uh, getting the data done and the education programs met in the way that we had set out to do. And um, so, yeah, I mean, so there was definitely some hard times when I got there and um, I, I, uh, I like asked all the guides from the little village bar de Potosi to come together and have a beer with me and no one came. And they always come to like have a meeting with me because I have good meetings. Like I always have snacks and beer and like we stick to <laughs> time and we start on time and we don't go more than an hour. And uh, they're generally a pretty happy and satisfying thing. So I was like, wow, what happened here? And so um, I heard, I wasn't able to go around to them. I had to like have one of my team members who's local ask the captains what's up and they and whether it was a thing between them that they didn't want to be together if they were mad at me. And they were mad at me because we had been giving all of these science studies. We have a, a hundred hour survey we're doing for NOAA this year. And we hired Arturo, my original captain, to do all 10 surveys of 10 10 hour days instead of passing it around. And so that was showing favoritism and giving him all the money. And we don't usually do that. And it was a mistake. Like I should have worked with all of the scientists like we do when we take women out and kids out and when we do tourism, we we cycle through. And so you get to go sometimes with Arturo who's been out for nine years and collected 2000 hours of data with us. And sometimes you're going with a first year guy who has not ever taken anyone out whale watching before. And so, but to be fair and to give that new guy that experience, you have to invest in spending that time, even if their boat is like funky and their their motor stinks and it's super loud and it's very uncomfortable and it's pretty leaky and there's no shade and you know and they are hard to talk to it's like it doesn't matter you still have to like be fair and so I had to basically go around to all of the guides one by one and just acknowledge that you know we had shown favoritism and that I'd done it because I was tired and it was just easier to just hire Arturo and I wasn't there to hear their grievances and to correct it early on in the season. And, uh, you know, that's just what happened. So, you know, there's these little things and, and you just, so, so, I mean, it's never, it's never easy, you know, I mean, there's always stuff, but I had to get over. Um, I had this thought when I started out that's a very, um, that, that I had to grow out of. And that was that I thought that because I was doing good work and I was giving so much to the community that I had earned something, I had earned their trust, or I had earned the right for them to be a certain way with me. And the truth is that I have, I will never have earned the, the right for anything. Nobody owes me anything. And if I think 
me being there and doing this work means I am owed anything at all from anybody, then I need to look at what I'm doing there. And so um, when I realized that and I recognized like, well, what am I doing down there? Why am I doing this work? And I'm doing it because it gives me meaning. Like it gives me meaning and it gives me connection. It gives me like, I love problem solving. I love asking questions. I love being in nature. I love connecting people. I love making space for people to transform. And so I have a dream job where I get to do all of that every day, all day long. And so I am so lucky because I've created a reality where I get to like be around my favorite animals and like get to be around really smart, emotionally intelligent people and um, have a little team of superstars and, and give them the skills to become great leaders. And, um, you know, I just, I have such a good life and, and I'm so fortunate and anything that comes my way from the community, it's not because I earned it, you know, I mean, that's anybody, anybody can give that, but nobody owes me anything. And so I had to like go through that. And I think that that's a developmental process that a lot of people go through when they work in conservation. And uh, you've got to get over the, the great white savior thing and look at your why and just be really, really honest about it. And um, because if it's coming from a place where you, you're doing it for praise or you're doing it to look good or you're doing it so everyone will like you, um, it's just like, that's a very hungry why. And it leads to discontentment and exhaustion has been what I've found, you know, because I, I mean, I have all of that in me too. I'm no saint, you know, and I like acknowledgement and these sorts of things. But if that is deep down the reason why I'm doing it, I, it's not a sustainable way to operate is what I found, you know? Last is a snippet from a special bonus episode where Stotra from episode 48 interviewed me for his conservation course at McAllister College. So, yeah, so I'm so grateful that you mentioned this. And this is like, I think, I think anybody who's listening to this right now should take take note of what Brooke just mentioned, that conservation or doing conservation is so crucial to have all of these voices represented, all of these like thoughts uh, to be uh, taken care of or at least heard. Because I think right now conservation has become so political. And right now, right now I'm being very candid that they, it has really become so political that you cannot, you have to take sides. Well, of course, but then it's a connected sphere. And as you rightly mentioned, if you do not listen to all of those voices, perhaps we are doing it wrong. It just cannot be that your way or my way or the highway. It just cannot. It just has. It had to be that level of, and I've been I, that level of, um, you know, juxtaposition and listening out. So, so now, like, just a small little side question. Like, when you, I'm sure this has happened to you a few times, quite a few times, and will happen in the future. That when you listen to someone speak about something that they are. Uh, they are talking about their side of the story about conservation or which you probably in your ideology do not cater to or do not substantiate. How does that, like, how, how do you react to it? Like, what's your moral, like, association when you are being the host and doing this, but you're not 
like you know you don't probably substantiate or you know uh, approve in your mind of those thoughts right <laughs> yes and this past episode is a perfect example of that <sighs> one sorry i did not want to put you in a spot no no no, no this this, this is a really fantastic cool question too. This is a fantastic question, and I'm so glad you asked it because it is very needed in our society today. One, I never get offended hmm. because what is there to be offended about? What? Why would I be offended that the that this guest or whatever guest they have on this is what they really view as the answer? Right. So who am I to judge them? Right, and Absolutely. they're making an insane amount of impact. And maybe mm. a way that I wouldn't do it, mm. but they have made a tremendous shift for conservation and right. probably through their message, they are reaching people that I would never have access to. So who am I to judge them? Normally in one of these situations, they are answering a question of mine. Mm. And so I let them go. I just let them talk. I just let them talk through because if they can explain their point, from A to Z, then there's nothing for me to add. You know, there's nothing for mm. me to say. And it's up to the listener to decide if they agree with whatever they said mm. or if they don't agree with whatever they said. Right. I am never going to argue on my podcast. And one of uh, my episodes, it was really, really good it was a re with a good friend of mine. Um, she was in the like lobby conservation side of things. Right. And we did have a little bit, I don't want to say banter is the right word, more of like, um, she's like, I mean, one of the things she said, she's like, can I challenge you on that? And I'm like, yes, please. Like, please challenge me on that. And it's so funny because what she was challenging me on is like the exact opposite of what this other guests was talking about. It's just so funny. <laughs> it's so funny that both of these people are on the same podcast and they are literally going to be further sides of the political spectrum. And both mm. of them have been guests on my podcast and both of them are making a difference for conservation, which is beautiful. Like no one is ever going to hear me say on my podcast, please vote for this person or please vote for that person. Mm. I don't want anyone to feel that way. I don't want to ostracize anybody for their political beliefs. I want everybody to feel welcome as they listen to my podcast, you are a rewildologist is what I say. You are a part of this community yeah. and we need every single viewpoint that there is out there. So mm. I don't care if, I mean, like I also too, I will also say this too. I come from a very conservative place, a mm. very conservative place. And I am blessed that some of the closest people in my life are insanely conservative. And some of the closest people in my life are insanely liberal. And since mm. I am directly in the middle, I get to hear both of these conversations. And so I'm never pulled in one way or the other. And so it's, and so, oh my gosh, it is so valuable to have people in your life that have every single viewpoint you can possibly imagine, because it'll keep you in line with what everybody is saying. And you won't get in this like tribal social media bubble where everyone's screaming the same thing and you're like wow the other side isn't the enemy they want the exact same thing that you do we just all think that maybe the solution's a little different that's all yeah. so 
so yeah, I, I just let them go. I let them talk and I delete and I leave it to my audience to decide if they agree with that statement or if they don't. And I hope that they don't get too upset one way or the other, because if they get upset then they might, then they're missing the point. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and if they do get upset, then hopefully they reflect on it on why they got upset. So yeah. yeah, I almost cut, I almost cut it out, but I was like, no, I can't cutting out his viewpoints right now. It goes against the whole reason why I have this podcast. So And there you have it, a sample collection of May's episodes and incredible guests. Hopefully you heard a clip that piqued your interest enough to check out the full episode. June and July are shaping up to be quite spectacular with new episode styles and an entire series about a topic you might not know much about. As always, thanks again for being a part of the Rewardology community. If you'd like to support the show, give the podcast a rating or review, share your favorite episode with a friend, or purchase some podcast swag. 10% of anything this podcast makes is donated to our conservation partners. Cheers to a new month, friends. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.